we have a crisis in the world, tremendous crisis, and also crisis in our consciousness, in us. I see the urgency of change, radical revolution, mutation in the mind. I see it. It is necessary. There is complete quietness of the mind, and that which is silent has vast space. Only then that which is nameless comes into being. This is Urgency of Change, the Krishnamurti podcast. Hello and welcome to episode 64 of Urgency of Change. Each weekly episode in this season of the Krishnamurti podcast is based on a major theme of his talks, such as freedom, self-knowledge, authority, beauty and meditation. Extracts from our archives have been carefully selected to represent Krishnamurti's different approaches to each of these universal and timelessly relevant themes. This week's theme is intellect. Upcoming themes are happiness, self-knowledge and anger. This podcast is brought to you by Krishnamurti Foundation Trust. Please see our official YouTube channel for hundreds of video and audio recordings of Krishnamurti's full talks and shorter extracts. We are a non-profit charity and rely on your support to continue to preserve and make Krishnamurti's work available. If you enjoy our podcast, please consider leaving a review. This week's podcast has five sections. The first extract is from Krishnamurti's fourth talk in Madras, 1983, titled Intellection Cannot Go Very Far. We use our intellect to comprehend, to discern, to argue. We use the intellect to choose, to measure. And so, intellect is the faculty, one of the faculties of the brain. And if we are going to examine this extraordinary, profound problem, mere intellection has very little place, and most of us are highly intellectual, highly educated, have extraordinary, especially in India, have extraordinary quality of analysis. You can analyse anything on earth. You've got fairly subtle minds. Not all, naturally. And to comprehend sorrow, mere intellection has has, cannot go very far. You understand? You understand, sis, what we are saying? That all of us have the capacity to 
use our intellect, which is to understand, to discern, to argue, to choose, to weigh one against the other. That's the function of the intellect. And most of us have that capacity. And if you are merely approaching this question of sorrow, then your mind, your intellect dominates the process of investigation. Therefore, it distorts. Whereas, is it possible to approach it with a holistic movement? You understand? We never approach anything as a whole. We never look at life as a whole. We have fragmented life, broken up as the intellect, the emotions, love and so on, broken it up. And so we can never look at a problem wholly. The word whole means not only complete, not only the feeling that parts are included in it, but the parts don't make the whole. Whole also means healthy, healthy mind, not a crippled mind, not a stagnant mind. A mind which is whole, a sense of covering the earth and the skies and beauty of all that. And also the word whole, whole means also holy, H-O-L-Y. So we never approach in, with that quality of mind. And in investigating, exploring this question, one needs to have that quality of a mind in the heart, which is not romantic, idealistic, imaginative, but a very factual mind, tempered with the quality of love, when we use the word heart, we mean by that mind in the heart, mind in love, in the quality of love. 
which has nothing whatsoever to do with any ideas, with any ideals, with any obedience. There is no guru. There must be freedom to observe. The second extract is from the sixth talk in Sanan, 1980, titled Intellect Has Little Place in Compassion. You sit there, listen, agree, see the logic of it, see the sanity of it, the reasonableness of it, the intellectual comprehension of it, but when you leave here, this tent, you're back again the old gate. So you are willing, as a human being, to carry on this burden of sorrow. Right? And a mind that lives in sorrow can never be free. You understand? And it's only a mind that is totally free from sorrow, we know what compassion is. The act of compassion is the act of intelligence. We mean by that word not the intellectual capacity of discernment, to distinguish, to reason, to judge, to weigh. All that is the capacity of the intellect. So intellect has its own intelligence. You're following this? But we are talking of totally different kind of intelligence. The ordinary intellectual intelligence we all have, more or less, because we are supposed to be educated, read books, clever at argument, opposing one opinion against another, and so on. But where there is compassion, the intellect has very little part. Where there is compassion, which comes into being without your inviting, it comes into being when there is the ending of sorrow, the ending of sorrow is the beginning of wisdom and therefore intelligence. You understand all this? No. <laughs> you don't do it. 
you are probably, I hope not, persuaded by the speaker, dominated by his presence, which is nonsense. But if you were really go into this very deeply, you will find your energy, which is being dissipated now in idealistic actions, in individual narrowing down of action, all that wastage of energy is making the mind shallow, making the not allowing the capacity which the brain has, immense capacity psychologically, making that psychological structure becoming more and more narrow, shallow. So, compassion goes with intelligence and wisdom, which is, inte- which is the very nature of intelligence. If you are, when there is that intelligence, you can argue logically, sanely, but with the quality of compassion. You understand? No, you don't. The third extract is from the fifth talk in Sanin, 1970, titled Intelligence is Beyond the Interpretation of the Intellect. You know, it's one of the most difficult things to convey something which not only demands the accuracy of words, but also the accuracy of perception that lies beyond the word, a feeling, a sense of intimate contact with a reality. And if you listening to the speaker merely interpret the word according to your personal like and dislike, without being aware of your own tendencies for interpretation, then the word becomes a terrible nuisance then the world becomes a prison in which most of us are unfortunately caught. But if one is aware of the meaning of word and what lies behind the word, 
then communication becomes extraordinarily interesting. Communication implies, as we were saying the other day, not only a verbal comprehension, understanding the meaning of words, but also going together, examining together, sharing together, creating together. And this is very important, especially when we are talking about sorrow, time, the nature of pleasure and fear. This is a very complex question, and every human problem is quite complex. It needs a certain austerity, simplicity of perception. When we use the word austere, we don't mean the harshness that's involved in that meaning of that word. A sense of dryness, a sense of discipline, control, following a particular dry course. We are using that word, austere, stripped of all that meaning of harshness. And But there must be the austere simplicity in the examination, in the understanding of what we are going to talk about. One's mind must be very sensitive, because sensitivity implies intelligence, and intelligence is beyond the interpretation of the intellect or the emotional enthusiastic action. And in examining, in looking, in listening, in learning about time, pleasure, fear and sorrow, one has to have this quality of sensitivity of perception immediate seeing something as true, which is not possible if, as we explained the other day, intellect with its activity of thought divides, interprets, 
I don't know if you are all here. Last time we talked about thought and the nature of thought and how it divides human relationship, though thought is necessary, thought as reason, sanity, clarity, objective, clear thinking is absolutely necessary. But thought also becomes a dangerous implement when one is not analyzing but looking. I hope we have understood when we have <coughs> talked about the nature and the structure of thought. The fourth extract is from the fourth talk in Sanan, 1978, titled Do We Think Reasonably, Logically, Sanely? Most of us are afraid to use reason, to think clearly, objectively, non-emotionally, not from a particular centre, either the centre outwardly or inwardly, and to think clearly implies that there is no centre from which you are operating in your thinking. Most of us think along a particular line, If we are specialized, we think along those grooves. If you are committed to a particular religion, a ideological structure, again your thinking is conditioned by that. So we begin to lose the capacity to reason. Reason implies certain quality of scepticism, doubt, not accepting anything, either from the psychologists, professors, or from the sacred books. There are no sacred books, there are only printed books, like, the, like other books, but we give them importance because they happen to be old. People have said they have been uttered by saints or by some teacher, and so we give to a printed word tremendous importance, which is to be driven by a language. And so, where language drives us, we cannot reason properly, sanely, 
or we cannot possibly reason logically if you are committed to a particular belief or to a particular ideology. Because then, if you are committed or identified, you go round and round that circle, round that particular ideology or belief. You don't think wholly, completely, deeply. So reason, we thought, is something intellectual, and anything intellectual we throw out. That's the latest fashion. Whereas we need this capacity to reason, which I said implies doubt, scepticism, the freedom from every form of authority, including that of the speaker, especially so. Because the speaker is rather intense about these matters. Therefore, you, are, you may be influenced by that. So don't think clearly for ourselves. And to think clearly, you must have no motive or a goal, a direction. If you have a motive that controls your thinking, if you have a goal, a purpose, a direction that controls your thinking, and you may logically, reasonably think along those lines, but they are not. They are conditioned thinking, narrowing thinking. Right? This is clear. So, as we said the other day, there is no speaker here. We are looking at our souls and our activities, our beliefs, our fears, pleasures, and the whole problem of life in a mirror. The mirror is objective. It doesn't, if your face is distort, clear, what it is, it reflects exactly, if it is a good mirror, your face. Similarly, we are together exploring, together going to all the, as we have done previous talks, into our human, ordinary, daily problems. Because if those are not very clear, if those are not established deeply, we cannot go any further. It's like building a house on sand. So, as we said, we are talking to, to ourselves. We are questioning ourselves whether we think logically, reasonably, and therefore sanely, 
or our thinking is illusory, based on some belief, based on some ideas, ideals, or on some past experience. Then if it is so, then you can't discover anything new. And also, we were saying the other day, we've, all our activities are based on thought. Whether you build a marvellous building, the technological extraordinary advancement, and thinking in your relationship with each other, every action is based on thought. And we said thought is always, under all circumstances, is limited. We went into that very carefully, why it is limited. Because thought is the outcome of knowledge which is the past. So thought is time-binding, right? We are using ordinary daily English. This is not a special jargon. So thought is time-binding, time being the past, and thought is the outcome, response of knowledge, memory, stored up in the brain. This is obvious. If you go think for yourself, observe for yourself, it becomes very clear. We are not brain specialists, but we can see that the brain is an enormously ancient instrument, very, very old. Conditioned by recording danger, pleasure, fear, and so on. So, thought is the movement of time, and thought is measure. I will be better. I think I am this, but tomorrow I will change to something else. All this is a matter of measurement. The more, the less, depth and height, horizontal and vertical, is all this movement of measurement. Right? Measurement implies comparison. Most of us compare ourselves with somebody else, always something much greater, not with poor people, but higher, more intellectual, and so on. So thought is limited under all circumstances, therefore thought is never free, 
thought is a movement in measurement. And we asked ourselves the other day the question, as all our thought, as all our action is based on measurement, the past, the present and the future, and therefore limited, and any action that is limited is bound to bring about great sorrow, great conflict, travail, anxiety, fear and so on. And we asked ourselves, is there an action which is not based on thought? Probably none of you have asked this question. Some may have asked it casually, when, when you yourself perceive that thought has brought about certain trouble, certain fear, then you begin to question it. But you don't go very deeply into it. You say, yes, is there a movement, is there a state of mind in which thought as measure as time in action doesn't operate? Right? We went into that very carefully. We said that there is an action which is not based on memory, which is not based on knowledge, which is not the result of some wish fulfilling, but when one understands the nature the structure of the whole movement of thought, not intellectually but factually, that thought has its right place. When you want to go to your home, when you want to drive a car, when you are involved in technological business, their thought is necessary. But is thought necessary? in human relationship. The final extract this week is from the second talk in New Delhi, 1970, titled Can the Intellectual Process Bring About a Harmonious Life? One lives a fragmentary life. You are different in the office and at home. You have private thoughts and public thoughts. And you see this wide gulf, this contradiction, this fragmentation. And you want to ask if thought can bridge all these various fragments can bring about an integration between all these factors. Can it? So one has to find out what is the nature and the structure of thought before we say that thought can or cannot. Thought. Can thought, the thinking, 
the mentation, the intellectual process of reasoning. Can the, such thought bring about a harmonious life? So to find out, one has to investigate, examine carefully the nature and the structure of thought. Which is, you are going to together examine your thinking, not the description or the explanation of the speaker, because the description is never the described. You understand? The explanation is not the explained. So don't let us be caught in the explanation or in the description, but together investigate, find out the how thought works and whether thought can really deeply bring about a way of living that is totally harmonious, non-contradictory, complete in every action, because it's very important to find out. Because if we want a world that is not so ugly, so destructive, brutal, when we want a world that is totally changed, where there is no corruption, a way of living that has significance in itself, not an invented meaning. One has to ask this question, not only this, but also, what is sorrow? and whether sorrow can ever end, pain, fear, love and death. We must find out for ourselves the meaning of all this, not according to some book, not what some other person has said, That has no meaning whatsoever. You know, knowledge has great meaning, has significance. If you want to go to the moon, I don't know why they want to go to the moon, you must have knowledge, you must have extraordinary technological knowledge or to do anything efficiently, clearly, purely, you must have a great deal of knowledge. But that very knowledge becomes an impediment when we are trying to find out a way of living 
that is totally harmonious, because knowledge is of the past. Knowledge is the past. And if you live according to the past, obviously there is contradiction. The past in conflict with the present. So one has to be aware of this fact that knowledge is necessary, and yet knowledge becomes a great hindrance. Like tradition may be useful at a certain level, but tradition, which is which responds to the present responsibility, brings about confusion, contradiction. So one has to inquire very, very seriously, if if you are at all serious, what is the nature of thought, thinking, You know, it's only the serious people that live, not the others, because the man who is very serious can apply, can be consistently pursued and not drop when it suits him, and pursue to the very end till he finds out, not be distracted, not to be carried away by some enthusiasm or some emotional reaction. That's why a serious man lives fully, and in inquiring into this question, what is thought, whether there is the possibility of ending sorrow, fear, the meaning of death and love, and also to find out for oneself, not according to anybody else, not according to the speaker, least of all according to the speaker, to find out for oneself a way of living that is harmonious, highly intelligent and sensitive, and that has the depth of beauty and to find out, one has to inquire the nature of thought. So what is thinking? Please put yourself this question, what is thinking? 
because unless one understands the deep significance of thought and whether there is any significance at all, one has to freely examine it, because we live by thought. Whatever we do is either reasoned out or examined, investigated, or we do it mechanically, according to yesterday's pattern, the tradition. So one has to be very clear for oneself what is the function of thought. If you observe very carefully in yourself, don't you find that thought is the response of memory? Memory, which is experience, which is knowledge. If you had no knowledge, no experience, no memory, there would be no thinking. You would live uh, in a state of amnesia. So, thought is the response of memory, and memory is conditioned by the culture in which you have lived. Right? You are following all this? According to your education, according to the religious propaganda in which you have been caught. So, thought is the response of memory with its knowledge and experience. And you need knowledge, you need memory, otherwise you can't get home, otherwise we couldn't speak to each other. But thought, because it is the response of memory, is never free, it's always old. You're following all this? And to find a way of living which is totally harmonious and very clear, a way of life that has no distortion, can thought find a way? Thought which is the old, response of the old, which is memory, 
And yet we use thought to find a way. Thought being, if you are objective, rational, clear, sane, we say, I'll think it over and find a way of living harmoniously. And thought is the response of the past, of our condition. Therefore thought cannot possibly find a harmonious way of living. You're, you're following all this? All right. Thought can never find it. And yet we use thought to find it. And yet we know thought is necessary. Thought to go home, to earn a livelihood, to do anything, thought at a certain level is absolutely necessary. But thought becomes an impediment to find a way of living which is totally different from the past, which is disharmony. Right? Is this clear? Are we meeting each other? Right? So what does that mean? That when you see the truth that thought will not find the way, however reasonable, however logical, however sane, clear, when you see the truth of it, then what is the state of your mind that sees the truth of it? You are following all this? Are you also working as much as the speaker is doing? Or are you merely listening to a few words and ideas? You understand my question? I hope you are also working as deeply and passionately. Otherwise you won't be able to find out. Otherwise you will never find out a way of living which is so extraordinarily harmonious and beautiful. And one has to find it in this insane world. So if thought will not bring about a way of life which is totally harmonious, and if you see the truth of it, not the verbal explanation, but the truth of it, what is the quality of the mind, your mind, that has seen this? Right? What is your quality of the quality of the mind, not your mind or my mind, but the quality of the mind that sees the truth of something. Right? 
What is the quality? <laughs> don't, don't answer me, please. You see, you're too quick in, with words and explanations. You don't let it soak into you. You don't stay with it. You immediately jump to words to explain something else. And you know very well your explanation isn't the real thing. So we are asking, what is the quality of the mind that sees the necessity of thought and sees also that thought cannot possibly do what it will bring about the beauty of a life that is completely, fully harmonious. You see, this is one of the most difficult things to convey or to talk about. Because we have lived all our lives on somebody else's experiences. We have no direct perception. We are afraid to have direct perception. And when you are faced with this challenge, you are apt to escape. Escape into words, explanations. And one has to put aside all explanations. They have no meaning, really. So, what is the quality of the mind? That is, what is the nature of the mind that sees the, the truth, 